This is Captain Jack Flack. David Osborne, get up to the cockpit right away. What's the big idea? You don't have to see the kid. They told me to make sure the boy was all right before we take off. Come on, you're wanted up front. But the bomb goes off in less than a minute. Come on, Junior, now. George! 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 Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rolaine. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will usually be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. This episode is a little bit different though. We are at episode 26, which also marks the first anniversary of the show. So we thought we would do something special, and as you probably noticed from our opening playlet, we have some guests with us today. We'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Brian Douglas. And I'm Sela Douglas. And we are Pathway Comics. We are launching a new comic book this month, The Dimensionals, a all-ages superhero, all-girl superhero team. And we're excited to be here. Yes. We have left it up to Brian and Sela to choose the film this time, so let's find out what they have in store for us. We've chosen the 1984 children adventure film Cloak and Dagger. Cloak and Dagger from 1984, one of my childhood favorites, a highlight of my childhood. And it was directed by Richard Franklin, written by Tom Holland, also with an uncredited assist by Nancy Dowd, and it stars Henry Thomas, Dabney Coleman, and Michael Murphy. You are leaving out my favorite, Christina Negra, as the young sidekick, Kim. When we watched it the first time, you said, she's in it? I did. I was overjoyed to find that this tiny little eight-year-old girl who houses the spirit of an old lady vaudevillian was in this film. Speaking of old lady vaudevillians, it also has some wonderful, small, but pivotal roles with Jeanette Nolan and John McIntyre. Okay, why don't you guys tell us what the film is about? In this film, a young boy and his imaginary friend end up on the run while in the possession of secret government plans encoded on an Atari game cartridge. Well, the film opens with a very distinct action sequence that's similar to a James Bond infiltrating an embassy type sequence. There are guards that are Russian, the American flag parachute displayed prominently as Jack Flack drops in from the sky. It's very Reagan era, late Cold War, it feels like. There's even an Arab in there. And a Nazi. <laughs> it is very clearly a kid's idea of what early 80s politics and adventure would be all about, or maybe an adult that only watched canon films. Mm-hmm. An Ruskies. Adult, right, exactly. Someone who only... <laughs> took in a steady diet of Chuck Norris. (laughs) (laughs) So right at the beginning, there's kind of an ominous music going with Henry Thomas's name and Debney Coleman's name. And those are in blue. And then the title comes up of Cloak and Dagger and the color shifts to red. And the music also shifts at that same moment from ominous to kind of more cheerful and upbeat. And then from then on, the words are red, and it's kind of a really stark red, but the words continue red for the rest of the uh, intro credits. 
So if we're starting with that red and blue, does that signify American? Red, white, and blue are the predominant colors that I see throughout the film. So there has to be a major America symbolic component to it. But I think the movie also plays on people's emotional responses to those colors all by themselves. Like red is interesting because it can be a scary color, but I think mostly in this it's used as a very nostalgic, confident color. Mm. So Jack infiltrates the embassy, and there is very real danger that he encounters. There is violence that is not shied away from, which is what caught my attention right away, because for a kid's movie, this setup immediately suggests that the stakes are going to be a little higher than they are for normal kids' entertainment that I'm used to. There's also violence with a woman character right off the bat. Exactly. Even though she's kind of a cartoony character, she's dressed real glitzy and has a real stereotypical fancy rich lady outfit on to where she doesn't seem that realistic a person the violence does kind of come right out at you yeah before any of that violence there's a hint that things aren't as serious as they appear with jack flack's parachute doesn't just detach it actually goes into his back because he's as we'll learn eventually, he's just a toy, or he is a, a character in this yes, adventure. But even as presented, like his, you know, his his back opens up. It's not like a backpack that he's got on. It happens very quickly, so it's hard to put your finger on. But on repeat viewings, it's his back opening up and his parachute retracting into a cavity in his back, much like it would an action figure. Yeah, like or one of those figures that you throw in the air and then a parachute pops out of it and down it comes. I was more distracted by Dabney Coleman's uh, tight pants. So I was looking at that and thinking, Another hey, if Dabney Coleman's <laughs> got it going on. Well, clearly, like Brian points out, there are sort of unreal elements to it, and it becomes clear when he begins to try to make his escape why that is. As he is trying to make good his getaway, a pair of large 20-sided die come rolling down the, al- <laughs> the alleyway where he is, and it becomes clear that this whole scenario is a figment of our lead character, Davy's imagination. And we see Davy and his friend Kim and their buddy Morris inside the back room of the Gamekeeper, this interesting game store in San Antonio. And when I was eight years old and probably last week, I could not have identified <laughs> any of the items in that back room and those dice meant nothing to me mm-hmm. but I think I'm maybe am I on my own with that one you were more into those things when you were a kid at least when you were that age you didn't recognize it but since then either since then no I don't know you, you, you pointed out things to me and I didn't I even understand the words you were saying uh, when the D&D modules <laughs> on the display no in idea. the background oh, yeah. no clue why were the, and why were those in the back room that needed to be uh, out on the sales yeah. floor yeah <laughs> My goodness. I think you may be on your own. Well, I don't have a strong background in understanding games or, like, gaming games. I recognize a 20-sided die, but I wouldn't have when I was a child. But I didn't see this when I was a child, so. So I like this setup because it demonstrates right away Davy's creativity and that he's a very imaginative child, and it's all about ingenuity. It sort of strikes me as a very early precursor of how geek culture has taken over. It presaged that by some 30-odd years where the smart kid is the hero 
And all of these things like Atari and Dungeons and Dragons are not something to be ashamed of, but something that a smart, savvy kid takes part in. And it's interesting that you mention ingenuity because that's one of my favorite lines in the film when Morris tells Davy, hey, ingenuity and contacts, sometimes that's better than bullets. We talk about ingenuity and the point that's made in this part of the movie about the boy being so creative and smart. I feel like this part is kind of skewed against the female character of Kim. Growing up with all boys on my street, I really learned the hard way when I was a kid. Boys made the rules of the games and played them to where they were always the winners. And so that scene kind of stings for me because it reminds me a lot of how it was to try to play with boys because there was no winning. And I feel like Kim, though the actress may just excel at playing this type of character, I think it's probably too quick on that time frame, that director's, that whole point of view to put her into the role of being a less interesting character than the boy character and a less intelligent, creative protagonist than the boy character, which frustrated me. Well, I, th- I think it's definitely Davy's story, for sure. Sure. And I guess I come from the perspective of being an only child, also in a street full of kids, boys and girls, though. So I was definitely the one to have to be my own instigator for all of this fun. So the... The gender role didn't bother me as much, and I try to think of it with the other things that she says later on and how she assists him and how, and many times he has to apologize and treat her as an equal, but I think again about she's been set up a little bit to go along with his schemes, and probably they haven't always worked out, and she's been embarrassed by him before, which is probably a real thing. You know, he can go overboard, so I'm thinking about it as being a relationship almost that is lived in. So she's got this history already with him at eight years old that she's just not having it. I think you do perceive, though, some of that being just what she was known for as a character actress, as a younger character actress, and the traits that she demonstrates over and over again in the roles that she's had. She always plays sort of the annoying kid, the thorn in the side, because of like I mentioned before, her really unique and sort of old-fashioned delivery. Mm -hmm. She belongs to, I know it's kind of a stretch maybe, but a seemingly older tradition when you compare her acting style to Henry Thomas's acting style. He's got a very naturalistic style where she has a very demonstrative, sometimes over-the-top, exaggerated, everything short of just taking straight to the camera. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So she is operating almost in a different acting technique than he is. And it definitely underlines the differences between the two. I, like you, Sila, came to this as an adult, too. I don't have that attachment, that nostalgic feeling of this was my one of my favorite adventures as a kid. So I think that colors both of our perceptions of it since we're coming to it as older cinephiles. So seeing it as an adult, you had that initial reaction to this scene. Did that continue throughout the rest of the movie? Do you still think she was a drip the whole time? <laughs> In a way, I mean, I'll talk more about how her character develops, but I think it's just a pretty common kind of trope even today that the female character gets put into that box of 
it's just a stereotype of a woman being like kind of a know-it-all and no fun and so on and so forth because i mean even movies like harry potter hermione is kind of Mm -hmm. that same role the juvenile equivalent of the nagging wife yeah she reminded me of like mrs roper or something So, I mean, I think it's just kind of a sign of the times. Uh, The movie was made in 1984. Girls were just not protagonists back then. I mean, there just wasn't the perceived audience for that. The first thing I can think of that sort of changed that was a few years later, it took until 1987 for there to be a prominent example. I think Adventures in Babysitting might be the first time I can think of a when the female protagonist was the one who was spearheading the action, who was in charge. I can't think of a prominent example aside from that. I have to go back to more of the young adult reading when I was a kid at this age and thinking about your bridge to Terabithia, that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Mm -hmm. In film, it's really hard to think of young girls really going for it. Yeah. So back to the main action, we are still in the back room of the gamekeeper and Morris is about to give Davy and Kim his secret assignment to go pick up some catalogs and some Twinkies from the Textronics office. And this is when he lets them use walkie talkies. And the analog that I have to that from when I was a kid, because we couldn't afford walkie talkies, but I did get a Mr. Microphone. (laughs) And when Kim picks up the walkie talkie and is having a great time, I remember just being delighted by my Mr. Microphone and somehow thinking that the world could hear me (laughs) when I was on it. And I was creating my own adventure once again with that thing. So that sort of presaged your adventures in podcasting. It did. Mm -hmm. And I I use that also to give out shout outs to the guys in the convertibles driving by. Isn't that from the Mr. (laughs) Microphone commercial? (laughs) But anyway, walkie talkies are cool. So he gives him, so Morris gives Davey and Kim the assignment. And the, the moment I really love Davy's not feeling it. Not It's obviously a way to get them out. And when Morris says, but there's a secret message inside the Twinkies, and Davy says, hmm, okay, and gives a little nod. I really like that moment. It's also foreshadowing. It is. As they go off on their adventure, we're able to see their full clothing, and we see that Davy is wearing kind of a classic American boy look with a red collar shirt with blue stripes and bright colored blue jeans and his friend Kim is wearing a very pale washed out light blue and some also pale shorts with a white belt essentially a non-color but if you had to assign a color it's light blue this is a recurring color scheme that we'll see throughout the movie and this is the first time that we see San Antonio as the backdrop for this adventure Henry Thomas's hometown. It is. Dabney Coleman is an Austinite, by the way. And with San Antonio, I was really also struck by the fact that the kids have a bus pass, and Ooh. that's their ticket to adventure, which I could not relate to being a suburbanite kid. We didn't have a bus system that could take us into any town to speak of, so it was really fun to see kids on their own out there having fun. Yes. Yeah, Brian grew up with a lot of freedom in Houston. 
Yeah, but the great thing about our bus system was that to get to the rest of Houston, you had to go through the very, very worst parts of Houston <laughs> to where it was not really extraordinarily safe to do so. Uh, but you can just go back home and watch Cloak and Dagger again <laughs> and dream the dream. Well, this leads me into another larger conversation that I wanted to have about the whole Kids in Jeopardy subgenre of kids' films from the 80s. You've got Adventures in Babysitting, like I previously mentioned, and this, The Last Starfighter, which was released as a double bill with this film originally, and things like Monster Squad. And the big one for everyone, The Goonies probably, is the largest example of that, where you've got kids off on their own having exciting adventures and facing real peril that I don't see similar things in film anymore. It may be that I don't watch kids' movies as much, but I'm wondering why that is, why those came to prominence. There's that whole thing about how entertainment reflects our anxieties. How, mm-hmm. for instance, a few years ago in the early 2000s, when you had films like Hostel and Teristas, things like that, that reflected our anxieties of how the world perceived us during the Bush administration as we moved abroad. What did this reflect in terms of societal anxiety Aside from the latchkey kid thing, it was Adam think, Walsh. Ah, that's a great yeah, that's a great point. Um, Adam Walsh was abducted in 1981. This movie came out in 1984. The TV special about Adam Walsh came out in 1983. I mean, it was right in there. But I don't know. I think this is nuclear war fears. The Cold War was still going on. It was still a very you know real threat. That hey, by the way, you might wake, you might not wake up tomorrow. You never know. It could just happen. And that was coming after 30 years of that had been going on to where the people that had grown up with that fear were now making movies. It was still ongoing. I mean, it might be like hearkening back to their childhood fears, mm-hmm. but definitely children of that era were still under the same gun. So more than associating this with Goonies, you would put it in with something like War Games, for instance. Yeah, well, no matter what the MacGuffin is, I guess, of you know the threat that they're facing, it's still the same thing. It's the life and death struggle. That You're right, I don't see that anymore as well in, uh, mm. in kid movies. I think it's an interesting point when we mention the Cold War still going on. It almost feels as if, as if it's among that ilk of films from a much earlier time where we all have our part to play. And Mm -hmm. I love to see kids having that level of freedom because that's the level of freedom that I had. And these kinds of films both created and fed this huge sense of adventure for me. And I'm sorry that I don't see those things now or that are grounded in reality, quote unquote, because how realistic is it that I'm going to find a game cartridge with the microchip on it? (laughs) I thought that I would when I was a kid, (laughs) but nowadays it seems like those films... For example, your Harry Potters are in the fantasy realm Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. the dangers of life are too frightening for people, possibly. Yeah. But, I mean, movies of that time period with kids having that level of freedom weren't that far off from reality. I mean, we grew up in the 80s. We know that we did have a lot of freedom and we could ride our bikes all day with our parents not knowing where we were at all. I I know I did. Definitely. We were gone all the time. I grew up in the country and so... I had a dirt bike. I lived three miles west of the little town I grew up in. My best friend lived three miles or so east. So I was on my own motorized vehicle, literally miles away from where my parents could help me, or they didn't even know where I was. They had a general idea, but anything could have happened to me in the miles between. And I think about how very little at this point 
how little unsupervised play actually takes place. I don't know what it's like for you guys, but can you imagine your kids off on a dirt bike seven miles away from where you are? No. Our kids are constantly imagining that. (laughs) (laughs) And bringing it up. Dorothy's dream, our daughter Dorothy, who's going into second grade, her dream is just to be left alone, just to wander the streets, (laughs) finding jobs for herself. We know from experience it was wonderful. It really was. It really was. But I, I think that that specter of Adam Walsh was still more of an aberration at that point rather than, unfortunately, what seems to be so common these days or mm-hmm. so widely publicized these days. We're much more connected, so you hear about stories in other states when you may not have when you were a kid. But yeah. it was close enough but not the norm enough to have affected these kinds of movies yet. That would come later. I mean, I feel like it affected our whole society, and I feel like the movies were reflecting the freedom and possibly Cold War fears and everything, but I do feel like they were indicative of the contemporary what was going on, and it may have taken a while for the movies to come away from that children in danger after the real child was in the picture because things take a while to evolve as we go. To this day, I mean, I lost my child in the store and it was Code Adam was what they called at the store. I mean, it's stuck with us as a civilization to this day. We still have two, though. Yeah, we still have our two kids. Um, (laughs) um, Thank you for wrapping that part up. (laughs) That got really scary. Um, I just feel like it's something that has really become an iconic memory for all of us, and it stopped being fun to see kids in danger in a lot of ways. I guess it was always, it used to be fun to see kids in danger. <laughs> <laughs> so the kids arrive at their destination to pick up the catalogs and the Twinkies, and this is where all of the really Hitchcockian elements kick in for me. Like I mentioned, I didn't see this as a kid, so I'm coming to this as an adult who loves film, and this is the really appealing part to me where I can sort of play spot the influence and how many times that Franklin is paying homage to Hitchcock. And it begins right here with the ordinary man, wrong place, wrong time scenario. Davy and Kim observe a couple of very Hitchcockian thugs getting on the elevator, one of whom exposes the butt of a gun that's under his jacket, which Davy notices. And of course, as happens in all those Hitchcock films, no one believes him, which I do like in this regard as a kid's movie lesson because this is the first instance when you realize he's on his own and this is going to require complete self-reliance. Because the adults are actively unhelpful. Mm-hmm. Well, so is the girl <laughs> at this point. We know you got an axe to grind with the Kim character. <laughs> so they go upstairs, split up, as you do to take care of delicate secret missions this way. And Davy observes, in a very rear window sort of scene, the first glimpse of the crime that's being committed. Right before that is when we get the first introduction to Jack Flack in the flesh, as it were. So his long-standing, always-present friend. And we move from this instance of rear window voyeurism straight into another Hitchcock device, which is the delivery of the MacGuffin. Davy is confronted in the stairwell, another prominent Hitchcock element, by a dying man, the man that he saw being roughed up by the thugs that we mentioned. The dying man hands him a video game and intimates 
that there are secrets on this that need to be protected, and he needs to take it and go. And he needs to get to the FBI as soon as possible. And I think there's some blood on the cartridge, too. And then we get another Hitchcock element, not just the stairway, but the death down the stairway. The specific way that it's shot feels very Hitchcockian to me. As Davy then watches that body fall through the stairwell, Mm -hmm. he is running down the stairs, makes it all the way down, and realizes then that he's got to alert the cops. So he starts screaming for the security guard to call the police. This is when we start to see people gather, and then Michael Murphy, the central thug, the person that we saw in the room also roughing up the scientists, makes his way down as well. And he's got a lab coat on, so clearly he works at the Textronics lab. Now, in this moment, when Davy is trying to alert everyone that a murder has happened, nobody's believing him right now, and he sees the man who has killed the scientist, it seemed to me like his fear either dissipated quickly or possibly he wasn't able to necessarily convey the level of fear. I don't know what the answer is, but I'm asking you guys as parents, not remembering myself what those emotions necessarily felt like when I was that young, is it easy for kids to sort of switch gears like that? Or was that just maybe an acting choice or am I missing something? Well, he was doing it under the direction of his hallucination of Jack Flack. So I think that helps. You know, as a kid, the Jack Flack stuff where he could actually see Dabney Coleman in the flesh as Jack Flack walking around, that always bothered me. That was the one part of the movie that I did not like. Why because is that? because I for me as a child it just rang hollow and false and you know, it suggested if he's actually seeing this person walking around and he can't tell the difference between this guy and another human, you know, I wasn't really w- willing to suspend my disbelief as to like Oh, no, it's his imagination. You know, it was the movie's presenting me with an actor walking alongside other actors, and so I'm just taking it as that's what I'm supposed to be believing that the boy sees, you know? I am with you because thinking back to when I watched this the first couple of times when I was a kid, mm-hmm. I felt the same thing. I wasn't quite sure what was happening, and there are a couple of moments where the film will do some some sort of winking to the audience of, oh, maybe it is real or maybe it's not, and that was really tough for me. I yeah. couldn't quite put my finger on it, which is okay when you're a kid. Yeah. As a grown-up, I was really thrown off by those moments. I'm like, what is this movie trying to say? You what mean the parts where it would, trying to do? Yeah, where it would suggest it would that he was the, actually like, like a uh, like a drop-dead Fred character? Like he would <laughs> he alludes sometimes Jack Black alludes to playing with other children through mm-hmm. time and you know taking on other identities. Or being able to affect the real world outside of just yes. what he's able to do right there are hints with yeah. like oh he's moved that cup of tea over here yes. or mm-hmm. you know right well as a, i also um noticed that when davy goes to the security guard and tells him there's been a murder the security guard does believe him at first mm-hmm. they go to the stairwell and That's there's and he nobody says, there the body is he even gone. says to call the police he tells the yeah. other guard to call mm-hmm. the that police before he even goes to check i really noticed because a lot of times in the movies it's like all the grown-ups are never going to believe the kid and that's happening throughout this movie but at this moment for a couple of seconds at least the security guard believes Davy's story and takes all you know emergency precaution to go in and investigate and then when there's absolutely no evidence there i think that's part of Davy's reaction to an ability to switch gears because he then is really confused and bewildered because how could it have happened so fast 
maybe he doesn't even know what he saw. And he's a kid who sees his own imaginary friend. So, I mean, maybe his understanding of what he sees and what he doesn't see is confusing him at this moment. But I think it's interesting that the real shift happens because there's nothing there. There's nobody. There's no blood. There's no people walking around. And there's just zero evidence to back him up. Which, by the way, is a little confusing. How did yes. they get down there and get that body? <laughs> yes. And move? are they, like, hiding right under the stairs? Mm-hmm. Right off to the side? <laughs> if they look behind the stairway door, is that where the thugs are going to be holding the body up? But this actually gets to the, the, the Jack Flack question. Just the existence of Jack Flack presented as Dabney Coleman interacted with, act- with other actors in the, in the scenes. It bothered me so much as a child, but I, it's my favorite part of the movie as an adult. Because I now I just see it as... I have to just step as, cut aside all of the, um, oh, is he real or not? I'm just, nah, we're, I'm not going to go with that at the moment. But just thinking of it as in terms of just an aspect of Davy's mind and Davy just having an internal conversation or perhaps an internal psychotic episode. I don't know. Either way, I like it. Uh, I guess that's my answer to, uh, do I buy his reactions? Yeah, because he's crazy. And, uh, <laughs> And we need the A's. So, <laughs> so the, the security guard shoes everyone away. He's going to actually send the kids with the police mm-hmm. um, because Davy has caused a big issue now. And as they're being taken away, Michael Murphy then shows up again, and he sees that Davy has left behind his ball, which has his name on it. So now the bad guys know who he is. So the police bring Davy home, and this is our first opportunity to see what home life is like for Davy and his father. And it is only Davy and his father because, as we soon learn, they recently lost Davy's mother. And Davy's father is also played by Dabney Coleman, so a fun little bit of stuff to sink your teeth into when you're a little kid. What does this all mean? The thing I really like about this particular exchange with the police detective is that he still comes to Davy's defense. He's a good boy officer, and the police officer responds with admiration for Davy's tenacity. I noticed that too. For an hour, he would only respond with name, rank, and serial number. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's a very male-centered view and estimation of worth and character. Police are bringing the boy home at night um, with the father's just like, oh, thank you. Like, it's no big deal. But the policeman is talking to the dad and being very like, this was a problem and your son didn't do this. But then they all sit there and talk about how admirable his actions were. So I feel like it speaks a little bit to the male experience or male ideals of the time that were being taught to boys and were really emphasized in this movie. Um, we were fighting communism, see <laughs> we were, And his Come not on. for nothing... The father character is a military man. Yes, yes. And I I think about how much that informs the character, a military man of a certain age. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. They do, however, soon after that, invoke the feminine perspective, or at least from Davy's perspective, when Davy mentions, Mom would believe me. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. So there is that element present still. But unfortunately, she is not there to voice that because they have lost her. Although I will say shortly thereafter, Davy does utter the phrase, Jack Flack was right. You just think I'm crazy. <laughs> so, so this is going to be in your treatise later on. Davy is crazy and everything that relates back to that. Well, I really did appreciate, though, that they have a more open relationship. His father, Hal, 
really tries to get him to talk and work through these issues and not just be so focused on these games that he can't really cope in the real world. And he talks again about maybe it's time to go back to the psychologist that we probably saw at some point after the death of the mother and understands what he's going through. He says, I was exactly like you. I wanted to be a hero, but as he got older, he realized heroes do different things. Normal, ordinary, everyday things. Boring things, right? There's one interesting point that I thought happened right there that sort of subverts that idea of this macho energy perspective where you see the exchange when the games get taken away from Davy. You don't see him behave aggressively or act out or throw a tantrum. He simply responds by saying, well, you could just play games with me, Dad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's not the big fit that I was expecting to see the first time. And to me, that's the changing in the 80s when we saw dads trying to feel more, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. be more relatable than just this, you know, aggressive aloof figure. Yeah, I do feel like this movie was really trying to present a softer, albeit still very militaristic view of what it was to be a good man. At the end of that scene, he, Davy asks to spend the night in uh, the dad's bed, and the the dad says yes. Absolutely. There's no hesitation, there's no shame involved in it, and I do appreciate that about this movie. It was kind of a unexpected attitude from something that is in other ways so stereotypical and so drawn out it was like some tenderness that was surprising yeah it surprised me too brian you mentioned that davy has to sleep in his dad's bed and that's because they get this phone call oh yes, a very right. menacing phone call the thugs know where he lives they know how to find him and tell him so Right. I was reminded again, this movie is really menacing. There are some scary parts for kids. For sure. Kids and adults. Before we move on, I wanted to come back to you mentioning the dad describing what made a real hero or what real heroes were like because of the boy's concept of this imaginary friend being heroic with all his dangerous you know, adventurous behavior, the dad points out it's putting dinner on the table, it's doing all these like regular everyday dad things, and he's basically describing himself to his son and pointing out what a hero he himself is and should be considered. And I thought that was really interesting, especially given the overarching message of the movie, but also just interesting for a dad who's kind of put upon to be almost like crying out for help and affirmation to his son because he just feels bad and wants to be acknowledged. And Davy says that he hates him, which I'm sure I said all of that garbage to to my parents and lashes out. And you have to remember, or of course he knows, he lost his wife, not just Davy's mom, his wife. And when do parents get the recognition for their struggles, parents? Never, probably. Yeah. Yeah. No, never. Never. Um, (laughs) And it's interesting because Davey asks his dad to play games with him, and the dad just doesn't even, I don't even know if he even answers him, but he's just clearly like, no, I'm not going to play games with you. And then Jack Black appears and makes fun of the dad. And for the first time, we see Davey react negatively towards his mm-hmm. imaginary friend yeah, telling Jack Black to shut up and throwing a toy at him and making him disappear. So there's obviously a lot of 
complexity in the relationship triangle mm-hmm. of Jack Flack, the dad, yeah. and the son. Yeah. Well, the dad is clearly at a, at a loss for what to do. Maybe he has exhausted his patience at this point. He's clearly frustrated. Maybe, as I was about to point out in this next scene coming up the next morning, they're obviously of modest means. When you look at the exterior, he's driving an old used car. They're living in this kind of shabby apartment. And so maybe he's exhausted his financial resources. Maybe he's tried doctor after doctor. Maybe they have dealt with this imaginary friend issue a lot more than we immediately understand. And he's got to go to work. These aren't rich people, as you mentioned. He's got to go to work. He's got to go pull a double shift as well at the Air Force Base. You know, not an unstressful job. Mm-hmm. Plus these family issues, which to think back to, again to sort of the gender role and gender stereotyping, how many times do we see the single mom have to go through these things, but for the single dad realizing, whoa, this is a lot to have to work through. So it's the next morning and Davy's dad goes to work. Davy's left alone in the house and we see a small scene with Kim and her mother. Who is hot to trot, by the way. <laughs> discussing... <laughs> Davy and why Kim likes him. And Kim says... Because he's the only boy in the neighborhood who isn't boring. So she values his creativity and imagination. Sometimes it just can be a little much. He needs to, she, yeah. he needs to be a better dungeon master, I think is really... This, maybe maybe yes, the crux of the movie. Because she started out saying she doesn't get the good characters. She doesn't like the games. They're no fun. So he needs to do a better job. Good yeah. point. This ties into another reason, which I think we'll probably talk about at the end when we talk about why we picked this movie. It's full of these sort of bridge to adulthood lessons. And one of those lessons being, sometimes your friends are going to be annoying, but they remain your friends. You stick by them. (laughs) She's still got the walkie-talkie. She is ready to go with the next assignment. And this is when the bad guys show up at Davy's house. And it is terrifying. The yes. big thug bursts through the door, kicks through the door. Kool-Aid it's man crazy. style. crazy, yes. Yep. And I mean, this is after the father left Davy, and Davy was expressing that he They're coming was to kill me. in danger, and the dad is like, oh, I'll spend all day tomorrow with you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll call that doctor to get to take a look at your head. We'll do baseball camp. It'll be great. It'll be awesome. Um, so it's really interesting as a parent seeing this child clearly and concisely stating the danger that he's in and just completely being blown off to be home alone all day long for a double shift all day and all night. We'll find out later in the movie he's expected to put himself to bed that night. Well, he's got the phone number where his dad is. Sure, that's all you need. Yeah, that's all you need. <laughs> but only call in that emergencies. <laughs> but minus the imminent threat of people coming to murder me, my situation was similar to that. <laughs> I did have the phone number in case I needed it. I was left alone for long stretches similar to that. Yeah. I just yeah. didn't have homicidal maniacs smashing through my door. Right. My parents would leave my sister and I for them to go out at night. They would put us on their bed with a movie and a TV dinner. And they were like, well, they're not going to move. <laughs> They'll just stay right there so we can leave now. And that was babysitting back in the day. Another story not to tell Dorothy about, because then that's what she will want to do. And it was great. And he didn't go anywhere, and it was all fine. (laughs) So Davy escapes the bad guys and heads to his friend Morris at the game shop to decode this Atari cartridge that he was given. 
to see if Morris can crack it open and find out what the big secret is. Um, there's just a moment where he's walking through the mall with Jack Flack, and it mm-hmm. says, oh, friendship yes. is a luxury a spy can't afford, and you see that, honestly, Jack Flack makes Davy a little sad, and what he has to tell him is not what Davy wants to do. Another one of these moments where we're bridging into adulthood, maybe? Leaving your childhood behind? Well, there are tough lessons to be learned, but you don't have to be a jerk at the same time. You don't have to leave your friends behind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They can become really valuable. And that takes us back to Davy's main friend, Kim, who calls in on the walkie-talkie that the thugs have her, and they want to make an exchange. So they set up the switch for the cartridge at the Japanese sunken gardens. In the meantime, what the bad guys don't know is that Davy has left the cartridge with Morris, and he has... Swipe a under, dummy cartridge. Under, yeah. cured. Yes. under the tutelage of Jack Flack Fagan, he has stolen <laughs> a uh, cartridge from Morris's shop and is going to be proffering that as the genuine article. In exchange for Kim. Sometimes In exchange for Kim. You have to commandeer resources sometimes. Yes. But an unintentional consequence of this is that the cartridge that Davy swipes has the shop's sticker on the back of it. Now, Davy, I don't think, ever learns this, but because he stole this cartridge, or because he was careless about stealing the cartridge and not making sure that it had no nothing that would trace back to Morris, he's indirectly responsible for Morris's death. They use that cartridge to track uh, where the real one is and uh, murder Morris for it. And right before that, we see that Davy escapes though he gives this fake dummy cartridge which gives him a moment to get away and get Kim and she knows oh at this point oh it's all real you know I'm sorry Mm -hmm. what are we going to do Davy is being chased on foot by the thugs and then we see Morris's death which at the time when I was a kid just blew me away sorry for the pun Mm -hmm. it was so upsetting to see the one who adult who was really on their side be completely taken off the yep. board. Yep. That really threw me. Yeah, I was really thrown. I can understand being a kid watching it and just rolling with the way that they present the plot points of violence that are happening. But as a parent watching it and a modern parent watching it, it's shocking to me how cavalierly they present, oh, Morris is dead and you're just gonna be right there next to him and this is just part of spy life i also wanted to just i was curious um he has the toy gun and he shoots the bad guy in the face with uh the toy gun that's loaded with fake blood and uh like he's so brave and he's so has so much wherewithal and courage despite the real world situation that he's in it's really like kind of unusual how collected he is but yeah i also had never seen anybody put fake blood in a toy gun was that a thing that people did was it a water gun i yeah. guess so. i just assumed yeah. sort of i don't know if a water gun would work with fake blood in it fake it was monster blood, blood so <laughs> Yes. So probably. probably. Should, should we yeah. test that for uh, <laughs> side podcast? Myth bust it? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I did not do that. I had cap guns. I didn't have a lot of water guns. Mm-hmm. I had we a lot of water guns. guns. We never did house. fake blood in them. I just thought it was an interesting kind of a little bit more extreme than his normal mm-hmm. way of showing him defending himself in a childlike way, but still kind of jarring and upsetting having a graphic element to it yeah yeah Mm -hmm. 
I was amazed at how freely they were just shooting at children throughout downtown San Antonio. Thank you. Yeah, and everybody just kind of walked on by. Um, Bullets flying everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I think some people barely noticed, but that's mm -hmm. about it. Also, as we go through, we noticed that literally everyone in the cast, save Davy, is in neutral, non-patterned, light-colored clothing. Hmm. So he really stands out in his bright red shirt amongst the crowd when he's running through... You always see Davy. He's even got a bright red backpack, so when he's turned away from you, he's even brighter red. Useful when you are a symbol of American strength. Not so useful <laughs> when you are a target on the run. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And this chase all through San Antonio leads down to the river walk, and Davy's again trying to get help from these diners who are cracking jokes and more adults who aren't going to be helpful. Mm -hmm. And he manages to get onto a tour boat, and the thugs are right behind him. And they're playing this sort of game of cat and mouse. And I think it's a great moment when they're not going to get on the boat. And then the two people in front are missing their wallets. So then the thugs do get on the boat. I know my little heart was pounding at that point. Classic. And this is also where we see the first sighting of Jeanette Nolan and John McIntyre, our old couple. And I wanted to specifically ask the two people who had not seen it as young kids, and especially Cole, who I know recognizes the actors right away, what did you think at that moment? I knew something was up. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know if it was going to be a red herring, but because of recognizing their faces and the way that the action was framed Composed. with them prominently in the background, I knew they were going to come into play somehow. I was surprised. And because all the other extras were so deeply unattractive <laughs> or, compared to them. Or the one lady who stared for a split second directly, directly into the, the camera. camera. With the weird painted on black eyebrows and the lipstick over well, her. Well, Eunice is always so attractively dressed, so she's going to stand out no matter what in this. I guess I didn't necessarily recognize them as anything other than possibly vaguely familiar actor faces. Um, but I, when she first interacts with Davy, was just really relieved because we have this kid running through the streets being shot at this kid obviously being harangued and chased by this menacing adult nobody notices nobody cares it's weird to me that there was that tense scene at the lineup to the boat because they were willing to chase after him in broad daylight shooting at him but a line for a boat <laughs> somehow stymies them and just makes it to where they're Sheila, like oh it, it, may have, it may have been the cold war but there were rules <laughs> So I was relieved when finally some grown-up was showing some understanding of this boy's peril. I didn't think that she was a throwaway character. It seemed like there was something to it, but I took her as a benevolent character at first. Because that's what you think when you see older folks, and she's treating him like she would her grandson, and clearly knows that something's up and wants him to tell her what yeah. the story is he, and yes. seems ready to believe she's him. not a dumb he, old lady she is with it he gives her that line of you wouldn't believe me if i told you ma'am and she says try me <laughs> one of the most biggest feeling of relief uh when i first saw that scene short-lived short-lived <laughs> this is also where the hitchcock connection kicks into overdrive with this couple Jeanette Nolan and John McIntyre both have a connection to Hitchcock through Psycho, 
John McIntyre was the sheriff in Psycho. Jeanette Nolan was actually the uncredited voice of Mrs. Bates. Oh, okay. And that Psycho connection keeps going because Richard Franklin, the director of this film, said that he was directly inspired to get into filmmaking because of Psycho. And he became not necessarily a colleague of an acquaintance of Hitchcock and visited several of Hitchcock's sets. And then we fast forward a few years, Tom Holland wrote Psycho 2, which Richard Franklin directed. So Mm. none of that can be a coincidence. I assume it's all sort of part of that circle. Everything that's in this movie is very intentional when it comes to references to Alfred Hitchcock's body of work. Now on this tour boat, Davy gets his opportunity to escape. So he heads back to the mall with the understanding that this big plan is going down at 5.30. Michael Murphy is supposed to give this cartridge to these foreign spies. So he heads back to the mall. Kim is there in the back room of the gamekeeper. We don't know exactly what happened to Morris, but it can't be good because there's a huge bullet hole through the computer screen. So they break up again. Davy's going to go try to stop this 5.30 transfer plan from happening. He heads back to the Textronics building to find Rice's car. And there he discovers Morris is in the trunk of the car, dead. Now he's got to get into the trunk with the body, which is also another incredibly terrifying moment Mm -hmm. as well. And this led me to my question for all of you. Did Rice just go back to work? Well, this stuff was happening because he, he comes down. Yes, he had to because he is presumably just trying to act like everything's fine, everything's normal, I'm just doing my normal job here. I don't know what happened to our colleague that suddenly went missing. Yeah, he just had to keep up appearances. So okay, sure, all right. Sure. And so then being in the car with Morris, Rice is taking them to, he doesn't know this, but Rice is headed to the Alamo to make this big exchange. Jack Flack, when he puts him in the trunk with a dead body he's very like nonchalant and i just think it's the way that death is handled around the children in this whole movie i can see as a child it would be horrifying to watch but it's just not actually played that way in the movie jack flack is like oh sorry about your friend get in there um and the it's cost just, of doing business yeah and, yeah. Yeah. and he also even says your friend wasn't good enough. That's why he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> he's Jack Black like... reminds me a lot of Grandpa Joe from the Willy Wonka movie. <laughs> <laughs> I can see Grandpa Joe saying that. Davy um, is expected to roll with these changes in this adult world. He's yes. thrown in this yes. to this adult world, and there's no time for him to be a kid. Yeah, we see a couple of interesting costume things at this point. We have seen a bunch of bad guys in, like, beige and gray and pale colors. Jack Flack is in almost all gray, but it's kind of a blue-gray. He has a kind of a slate-colored leather jacket and some gray pants. Like a darker Um, gray. It's like a... Maybe he's like those bad guys, maybe more so. It's interesting because it kind of is combining the blue with the gray to where, to me, it's kind of an in-between, like, he's your friend, but he's not necessarily Hmm. on the right side of things. At this point, Davy has not changed clothes. Davy is still in his red shirt with blue stripes. Kim has changed clothes. Kim has also changed her whole perspective. She is now wearing 
a red and blue shirt and it's indicating that she is now more on Davy's page and they're more of a unified team. She has a plaid lighter red and blue shirt, but it's still more <laughs> vibrant than anything she's worn so far. So the action takes us to the Alamo where Davy is going to try to prevent this exchange of government secrets. He runs into the old folks again that were so benevolent to him on the Riverwalk cruise. And with their help, he pulls the old switcheroo. They have identical camera cases as the bad guy. And so the old folks, it turns out, end up with the Atari cartridge. And as far as Davy knows, the bad guy got the shaft. This is also not before the, they, they don't leave the Alamo before the Alamo staff starts flickering the lights <laughs> to indicate Alamo's closed, folks. Time sort to go of home. belligerently, in fact. Sort of belligerently, yeah. yes. Get out. But There's the exit. It, 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 it cuts to the old couple, and so their faces are like lit dark and light, mm. dark and oh. light for a moment. You don't have to go home, folks, but you can't stay at the Alamo. <laughs> <laughs> Alamo's closed, folks. Moose up front, should have told you. <laughs> So George and Eunice get Davy into the car and they see again that he has come out on what we think is the right side of this exchange with the cartridge. And Eunice is asking some questions. What do you know about these foreign spies? And Davy says, the only thing I know is he's missing a couple of fingers on one hand. And basically Eunice says, you mean like this? (laughs) And they're the foreign spies. Yes. Two fingers missing. There's chloroform. This scene basically had everything that would have been exciting and dangerous to me, except quicksand yeah. as a kid. All the- <laughs> that would have filled all, ticked, ticked all the boxes. All the boxes. <laughs> Davy wakes up sometime later. He is back in that trunk with Morris, and Rice is supposed to be dividing up this money because the spies have exchanged everything. And the thugs are talking about how they're going to ask for more money because they're going to kill this kid. They make the stupid mistake of leaving the keys in the car. And Davy is able to slowly and ineffectively yet effectively escape by driving the car for the first time in the way that you would as a kid. He busts through that seat like a Terminator, though. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, he just pushes the whole thing over. Well, Jack Flack was giving him, feeding him a steady stream of adrenaline. <laughs> I do like that he can't drive. I do like that they don't Absolutely. do that yeah. automatic expert thing yep. mm-hmm. that happens too frequently. Definitely. Yep. He can barely even see over the steering wheel. Yeah, he may, he drives by a sense of touch <laughs> as he scrapes and, every well, wall in the uh, And Jack Flag breaking the wall of being an imaginary friend, being able to direct him and tell him what's ahead a Absolutely. little bit. And Davy has also overheard from Rice that Rice has planted explosives at Kim's house and he's going to blow up this whole neighborhood and the clock is ticking on this. So Davy has yet another deadline that he's trying to get to, which is to save Kim and prevent the spies from getting away. So it's a race to the airport. Davy has surmised that the bomb is actually in Kim's walkie talkie and they have to go rescue her before they can thwart the other criminals. Because he sent her to the airport. Mm -hmm. So that's the mission that she's on. In the meantime, he calls his dad to try to get help from his dad. And as he is doing that, one of the bad guys smashes through the telephone booth in a van. And here we start to see the process of Davey taking out the bad guys one at a time. Jack Flack tells him when the bad guy crashes into the window to take the gun. At this point, Davey still refuses. And Jack says, you are going to have to kill the bad guys. 
you're going to have to do this. And you can't go right to the objective. That's no fun. You've got the killing people is the fun part. It's Duh. cloak and dagger for real. And we see Kim is now in a purple cardigan, and we can tell it's a lavender cardigan, and she also has lavender pants on. She still has her red and blue shirt on, but to me, the extra color that doesn't show up anywhere else is kind of putting her in this third role where she's not an equal as much. She understands the goal, and she understands the danger, but she's off on her own little part of the dangerous scenario. Well, we see her on the bus and it zooms in on her bag and reveals to us that she is carrying the walkie-talkie with the bomb in another scene that directly echoes Hitchcock, specifically the film Sabotage, in which we see a young boy unknowingly transporting a bomb on a public trolley. And this gets into that whole thing about surprise versus suspense and how much more effective suspense is than surprise. Hitchcock cited the example of you show a couple having a conversation at a table and a bomb goes off. You've got 15 seconds maybe of surprise. But if you show a bomb under the table and make the audience aware of it and that it's set to go off at 1 o'clock and then you show a clock in the background at 1245, then you've got 15 minutes of suspense, which is entirely more effective. And they do all of those things in this. We're constantly looking at different clocks and different people speeding towards the same objective. But in the meantime, Davy's still got more bad guys on his tail. He's got Rice and Alvarez, and they're about to head back to the Riverwalk under a bridge, and Jack tells him he's going to have to use the Crossfire Gambit. The old Crossfire Gambit. Again, relying on his ingenuity rather than having picked up a weapon. Mm-hmm. This is also a moment where Jack Flack breaks the wall, or it seems to me. He's smoking and drinking espresso, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the bad guys come and put a briefcase on the table and they knock espresso off of the table in an otherwise vacant area. So it seems that it's Jack Black actually had some espresso. That's one of those <laughs> winking yeah. moments that I wasn't sure what to make of when I was little. But yes. it gave me some delight. And somewhere around here, Davy skins his knee. Skins his knee so bad that it tears through his jeans, and you see him bleeding through his jeans, mm-hmm. which is foreshadowing one of the most terrifying moments in mm. maybe all adventure film for me. Yeah, that speech is coming up soon. Frightening. Uh, yeah. Well, let's get there. Well, Alvarez is taken out in the crossfire gambit, and Jack Black finally convinces him to take the gun this time. He takes Alvarez's gun, but runs off in the opposite direction that Jack tells him to go toward a dead end, where Michael Murphy corners him. This is with loads of guilt and horrible things said by Jack Flack, saying, like, you know the rules, and you're no fun, and how many people have I killed for you? This is what you've always wanted. Really terrible imaginary friend. (laughs) And the real-life bad guy is talking about how he's going to slowly murder Davey in a terrifying, terrifying way. Michael Murphy... Uh, explains to Davy that he's not just going to kill him, he's going to shoot his kneecaps off. <laughs> and Kids film. In kids film. And then he's going to shoot him in the guts and let him slowly bleed to death in the worst agony that a human can experience. The phrase shredded meat is used. Mm. Shredded meat. Kids film. <laughs> kids film. Yep. So you can see how Davy's left with no choice except to defend himself at this point. Davy says, please stop, I don't want to shoot you. And Rice says, but I want to shoot you. 
Jack Flack is saying, what would a real hero do? And he previously has said, if you're not going to save Kim, who will? And it's a very loaded, mm. horrible scenario for an 11-year-old boy to be... But ultimately, Wasted. Jack Flack has to save the day here because Davy seems paralyzed and not able to finally pull the trigger. Even after all this has been said, he's eleven. Jack <laughs> Flack off to the side. I'm not even sure what is he, what is he preparing to do. I he, do a soft shoe. I can't. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen over there. But because Davy keeps averting his eyes over in that direction. Uh, Rice starts to believe that Davy must have some secret ally hidden off in the sh- in, the, in the so shadows. Odd. It's not in the shadows. It's in a lit on. up. Area. Yeah, but it's making him just take his eyes off Davy. And, yeah, you know, Davy's, hold, Davy's holding the gun at, at him. At a lit up wall, he just shoots a wall. Right. Davy's does. holding. Yes, that's right. He shoots at a wall <laughs> because Davy shouts out, you know, Jack, no, something along those lines. So Rice believes in invisible friends. Well, Davy's very persuasive. <laughs> well, Jack sacrifices himself slash tricks Davy into shooting Rice. Davy also drops the gun. The camera poignantly points to the gun, like you know, sadly clanking to the ground. Kind of reminded me very much of how he drops the baseball when he first sees the, mm. uh, the technician murdered in the uh, Textronics building. And so I don't know if, the, if dropping the baseball is Davy losing his innocence. I'm not sure what dropping the gun is l- losing. Ditching the evidence. Ditching the evidence. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe losing his hope. Perhaps. Oh. Yeah. Just really got to me. <laughs> well, it's definitely what this whole sequence is about because he not only is dropping the gun. He drops the action figure and stomps on it, mm-hmm. basically turning his back on everything that's come before. Yes, And Jack killing is, Jack Flack. He kills Jack Flack by stepping on the figure. Jack Flack was fine. He, his soft shoe routine saved him from the hail of bullets from Rice's weapon. But then when Davy steps on the figure, blood begins pouring from various bullet holes. And uh, with a very confusing statement of, oh, it's so sad when I have to leave when they, when they don't believe... Once again, Davy completely wrecked with guilt for mm-hmm. all the culpability of the murders and deaths that happen around him. Was there a kid better in the 80s at suffering loss than Henry Thomas? <laughs> I can't think of one who did it better than he did. That's good. Tellingly, also, Jack Flack says, your father said the same thing. Yeah. 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 <sighs> <sighs> not, a, not a dry eye in the house. So Jack Flack sends him on his way with no hope and <laughs> Davy has got to get to the airport on time. Mm-hmm. So he has headed out to look for a taxi or somebody to take him there. That's when we see Louis Anderson in his uh, sleeveless <laughs> western shirt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he gets Christopher Guest, the brother, to drive him to the airport. Oh yeah, just some helpful stranger on a busy city street. It's fine. In the meantime, Kim's mother has found a note that she left detailing her whereabouts, and Davy's father has come over to find out what's going on, and they are now all headed to the airport for this grand finale. And Kim is there already, and she's trying to get the police to pay attention and realize the threat that is imminent at this point. And Davy arrives as well and spots George and Eunice and tries to get a security officer to get over and stop them. He's faking that they're his parents. And in the meantime, while this is happening, George and Eunice figure out what's going on. And George starts to take hostages, Davy included, and starts shooting up the place. 
and takes everybody out onto the tarmac. He's going to commandeer a plane. Also one of those 80s things, hijacking was huge when I was a kid as well. And And they even say they're going to take them with the plane to take them to Cuba. Cuba. They had previously been planning to go to Mexico City, but they switched to Cuba at this point. And also at this point, somewhere in in this, Davy grabs the uh, walkie-talkie away from Kim, and before he can explain what it is, because George and Eunice don't know anything about this. This was just a device of Rice's. They've unwittingly got a bomb on the plane as well. And Hal and Kim's mom have arrived, and Hal is the only person who is going to be able to fly this plane right now or be able to do something. So he puts on a captain's hat and heads out to the plane. He also, at this stage, uh, he's always been wearing his uniform, which is uh, pale blue and navy, so it kind of is in line with most of the other neutrals that don't stand out. But I found it interesting because the only other person that's wearing that bright, bright red is the air traffic controller that comes in through the side door and is like, I can't stop it. I can't do anything. I don't know what to do. And in effect, Davy's dad takes his place because they switch through that door. And it's, I felt like it was kind of symbolic of him coming over to now being on the red side, being Davy's side of righteousness. I like your thing about that because that guy in the red jumpsuit always was jarring for me because it, he wasn't an essential part. Like We've this never movie seen is very, him before. He has a line all He has a sudden. line, but anyone could have said that line. Like, oh, they're demanding to, a pilot. Anyone could have said that, but they have this guy come in in this bright red jumpsuit carrying the bright flashers. And yeah, and then Davy's dad walks right past these trade places and then as, uh, as he heads out to the tarmac, yeah. So Davy's father fakes his way onto the plane, acting as the pilot who is going to take them to Cuba. George and Eunice are occupied with him while Davy is trying to disarm this bomb that is quickly counting down to zero. He can't manage it. Jack Flack is not there to tell him which wire to cut. And Hal knows that he only has so much time because he can't actually take the plane up into the air. So yeah, he can only taxi it. He can't fly it. And he's yeah. got to get Davy to safety, so he uses the Jack Flack gambit to try to get Davy's attention, which doesn't quite work exactly. Davy's busy. Yeah. I think Jack Flack's non-presence in this scene is really interesting mm. because... The mantra has always been Jack Flack always escapes, Jack Flack always finds a way, and Jack Flack at this point is effectively dead, yet Davy, and Davy saw him bleed to death and say, you're a man now, I'm gone, I'll never see you again, but he's still asking for Jack Flack in all earnestness, like, where are you? Come here, I need your help, please, please, please. Hmm. And it's just radio silence from Jack Flack in this moment. It's kind of like a Jesus thing. It's like, Father, why have you forsaken me? Well, I think it's really illustrating the transition of Davy learning that he needs to rely on his real-life father as opposed to his imaginary Hmm. construct of a father. Yeah. And realizing that the imaginary friend is not always going to be there, but that his dad is a real-life flesh-and-blood person that can be there when, you know... Okay, well, we got to show this. Well, doing but, doing but all those course. ordinary things, like you mentioned, doing the laundry, paying the bills, but also flying a plane. Counter-espionage. Boring. Outwitting foreign spies. 
<laughs> but before that, we do actually have the disembodied voice of Jack Flack saying, it was always you, Davy. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. always you the whole time to give him that internal strength which to call be- upon. Which, because of the espresso cup, we know is a lie, though. So, <laughs> very odd. Yes. We'll remedy this in Cloak and Dagger 2, okay. our <laughs> upcoming script. <laughs> So Hal has used this gambit to try to get Davy up to the cockpit so he can get him out. And he does some fancy maneuvering and shoves the throttle forward so that he can get the crooks off balance and get Davy up into the cockpit. And that's when Davy's finally able to show Eunice, hey, there's a bomb in this thing, see you later. Runs up to the cockpit. Hal is able to get him out the window. That's the second time Ray almost gets run over because he's got to drop off third That's time. That's the third time. <laughs> got to do a big shoulder roll yeah. out of the way. The dad is all, be sure wheels. to roll away from the plane <laughs> as you hit the tarmac. Right. Like you can, he barely hears him, but thankfully his Dave training kicks attention. in. Yeah. He's a, he does, the film doesn't end with him getting run over by good. a huge plane. That's a good thing. And he, he stands up and he sees the plane going further and further away and then the huge explosion happens and then we see Jack Flack coming out of the big fireball and then it turns into Hal and he says I don't need Jack Flack anymore I've got you dad the end it was fairly abrupt for me (laughs) (laughs) it's pretty uh, explosion there's dad and everything's fine well I think it's all wrapped up at that point I guess everyone is dead I think you watching it as a child, probably, kids always want a little bit more. Kids always want more explanation. I didn't feel any kind of abruptness. I was all like, yep, that sounds about right. That's where it ends. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It was very, you know, non-abrupt for me. (laughs) The first time I watched this as an adult, that scene was maybe my favorite because... There's the explosion that no one could walk out of. Jack Flack begins to come out of it. It's definitely Jack Flack's silhouette. And then, for me, Davy just decides what kind of crazy he's going to (laughs) go. And he decides to go crazy in the direction of, my father's still alive, even though I know it's not true, and I'm just going to hallucinate Dad (laughs) coming out of this fireball. So you think no one survived that explosion and he's in his hospital room well i think davy's alive but i think davy now just is gonna for the rest of his life just be talking to ghost dad right sorry he's in his padded room padded room yes living this moment that he's created okay all right or you know just going on a cross-country insanity spree with uh (laughs) with his imaginary father and kim yeah kim wouldn't find that boring (laughs) (laughs) okay interpretations all right (laughs) okay with the film all wrapped up this is when we usually discuss why we chose this particular film for the episode so since you guys brought this to us brian why did you select this film why does it stick with you after all these years well this movie to me gets to the crux of a lot of what in literature fantasy films what's childlike and what is childish with childlike being the good aspect of childhood wonder and sense of adventure and childish being the bad side immature ridiculous on its face modern comics there's been a schism that's occurred where if you go into a comic shop nowadays there's infantile comics that are aimed at five-year-olds and under and then there's comics aimed at adults only obviously when they created these comics they were thinking well we're gonna have you know the ones for kids and we'll have the ones for the adults and at least that way the comics won't be childish is what they were going for. But the comics are childish. The ones for adults are more childish than the 
than the ones for the children because they've got all of the uh, adults-only elements. They'll have like all the you know extreme violence and nudity, language, whatever, but none of it's in the service of the storytelling, or I should say very little of it is in the service of the storytelling. There are still great comics that are for adults only. I don't mean to say there aren't, but for decades, you know, these comic companies were coming up with these long, flowing stories that could be read by anybody, could be read by kids, could be read by adults, and it was this amazing shared experience that just went on and on and on. It sounds like when you're talking about those kinds of stories, it makes them ripe to revisit. So it gives you something to read at different levels depending on where you are in your own life. Yes, yes. And so this film exists in that realm of true family entertainment that doesn't exist in particular in these comics that you're talking about where there's something for every reader and so it appeals to you after all this time because it retains that? Yes, yes. As extreme as this movie is, even with the kneecapping and everything, it's possible for younger kids to, you know, be in the room. I'm assuming. I haven't, we haven't experimented with our own children <laughs> with this. But it's possible for kids to not really understand it all, not really to take it all in. It's possible for, the, for some of it to wash over them and for it to actually only get more and more horrific as you get older, as is certainly is the case with me watching it. Well, I saw this movie when I was eight, and there were enough surprises and those what-if questions that would keep me thinking Mm -hmm. long after I saw it and keep me interested. And I had a thoroughly wonderful time when I saw it, and I remember my mother actually really enjoyed it too. And I came back to it as an adult and realized, oh, I actually liked this because it is Mm well-made. There's an interesting story. The stakes are as high as they possibly can be. Yep. So that's something to get really invested in. And I have enjoyed watching it the multiple times that we've done it now together for the show. Mm -hmm. I think I was just a hair too old is why I missed it the first time. I was 14 when it came out. And I think it really is perfect for 10 years old. In 1984, when it came out, my favorite movie that year was Pope of Greenwich Village. Sure. For example. So I really left that behind. But this movie is a perfect vehicle to bridge that gap I think this is why I would have chosen it for the episode a for all the Hitchcockian elements in it because it's just fun to spot those but b because it seems like a real bridge from childlike ideas to adult ideas it is helping you move from one phase to another to make it not so scary it's all about mastering fear and using fantasy to overcome your anxieties uh, as a way of processing danger. And I really appreciate stories about relying on your own ingenuity and your own skills. And I respond to that so much, again, as an only child, that truly at the end of the day, you only have yourself to rely on. While it's wonderful to have a family who believes in you and friends that will go on those adventures with you, it's you still have to be the master of your own decisions and choices. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting that you say the only child part because I have an identical twin sister and I actually respond in almost the opposite way because it just makes me so sad that he's constantly told that he's the only one that he can count on and that he's separated from everybody and everybody lets him down and all this stuff and it's I'm like oh why does he have to be alone why is this weird message about you only have yourself in this world 
because I always had someone with me. I always had a partner in crime, uh, as it I, were. I played Uno by myself. <laughs> <laughs> Did you win? I would play the hands as they were dealt. <laughs> My mom was an only child. She made faces at herself in the mirror. Well, you've talked about how this genre doesn't seem to exist anymore, the children in danger, and the children are in danger. I mean, there are, you know, in real life, there's ever-present just from the news of the threat of like, oh, somebody could shoot up our school any day. We just don't know, you know? And so I feel like it's more important than ever that this genre might be brought back. True. I hadn't thought of that because now, now that you say that, I think the equivalent of the Kids in Peril movie would be something like Gus Van Sant's Elephant or something truly horrifying like that that doesn't have these sort of exaggerated cartoon elements, even though the stakes are high, but something that is actually dealing with a true tragedy that kids this age might be going through. Well, comics have been used that way since the beginning. I mean, Captain America was put in place because people didn't have a hero to look towards. There was World War II going on and all this stuff. It was a full and, year before the invo- before America's involvement. And I mean, they so. always point out in comic retrospectives that that's why comic heroes were needed because people needed something to focus their fears in a hopeful fantasy kind of way mm-hmm. to help them process what real life was like and how to keep moving forward. And we live in a time where it is very scary for children, but for some reason, children's media has gotten far away from putting children in the hero roles and putting children in like a intelligent protagonist role. Yeah, instead it's just more like messages about how can you get by if you and your wealthy twin brother are on a cruise boat <laughs> constantly? <laughs> well, the one what do you do? The one example I think of, you saying that about how they're focused these days made me think my favorite kids film from the last decade is Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, which definitely prioritizes ingenuity and creativity, but the stakes are zero. There's no danger. And I love the movie. It's right. one of the most entertaining things I've ever seen, but it is vastly different. The cultural landscape has changed so much that I do wonder if they actually could ever make a movie like this again. Well, I think, again, to a different type of media, and my favorite stories beyond the Harry Potters are the Philip Pullman trilogy, His Dark Materials, I love that series, and those stakes could not be higher and talk about the nature of the soul and is there a God and so on and so forth and mortal peril as well. And I think again about the conversation we've been having through this film about accurately and equally representing genders in heroic roles as well, and those feature a female protagonist And I imagine that you guys also had those thoughts in the creation of Pathway Comics as well. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, things are getting better, but there's still a long way to go, a lot of road to recover. We have this giant Marvel Comics poster in our house, 50 inches by 50 inches. It shows all of the major, most of the minor characters from Marvel back in the 1980s. And uh, it's a great poster, but it's mostly dudes. It's a lot of dudes. So, yes, we've got this new uh, series, The Dimensionals. They're um, preteen, all-girl superheroes. Let's see. What to tell about The Dimensionals? It's our original comic that we're creating as a team. Um, Brian is 
doing um, most of the art and writing and I'm kind of a finisher with coloring and final edits on some of the visuals and dialogue and um, we're creating it really as a response to being parents of children who want stories where children have agency and mm -hmm. children are able to be solving problems that actually matter and children are in charge of the things that they are capable of being in charge of. Our children read a lot of things that are out of date are not current and we actually don't have a lot of the current stuff because it's just not that interesting or good storytelling. There are a few exceptions but I mean our daughter has grown up reading depression era comics like Little Orphan Annie and mm. Little Lulu and she loves them because those children have freedom and agency and authority over their own actions and also are heroes and they're girl heroes at that everyday regular little girl heroes and they love things back in the 80s one of Brian's big influences that's is right the series Power Pack with four child superheroes that uh yeah, a series that you might be able to say if you looked at the series as a whole, oh, it, it got very dark because, oh, there's lots of life and death stakes. There's massacres that happen that they have to deal with. There's, you know, terrible things. But it's also like every page just dripping with wonder and excitement and high fantasy. So we just find that our children respond the same way we did to stories and media that are from a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And we don't find compelling stories as much in things that are being created today. We do very clever things. Lots of clever things happening. Yeah. But um, and there's some good stories, but there just aren't enough. And we want to be part of the solution there. Yeah. And how does the dimensionals do that? We have four girls. Uh, they're young. They're aged from about seven to twelve. Mm -hmm. They're regular everyday girls that end up being imbued with very special powers. We're tying in current interest and just a lot of fun uh, information by using STEM-based powers. Their powers are based on actual science properties. With still loads and loads of uh, just making stuff up. <laughs> yeah. well, no, it's funny because you know you look at like all the comics. You look at like the Fantastic Four back in the '60s. You mm -hmm. know, it's, it was decades ahead of its time. There were decades before they could make a film of any of it because the concepts were so out there, the visuals were so beyond what filmmakers could handle for many, many years. But the characters were stodgy even then. The, the powers were stodgy even then, mm -hmm. and the stock you know characterizations were stodgy even then. I mean. Mr. Fantastic was just Plastic Man, but serious. And, mm -hmm. you know, the thing was one of the monsters that they've been doing for the decade prior. So, yeah, it seems like there was time to, like, poke around a little bit at some of the, just the science that's floating out there. So, what? yeah, all their powers are based on weird and surprising phenomena that happen with uh, subatomic particles. What I think is interesting about the powers that you chose is because by basing them off of something in reality, albeit a very obscure, unknown reality to most people, you are putting limitations on their powers also. I think you as a comic reader has have gotten frustrated with someone like 
Superman or the stories getting derailed by the writers constantly revamping just what the parameters of their powers are and just changing them kind of arbitrarily for however they want to write the story or whatever they feel like they should do. And I like that the powers that you've given the girls have finite edges to them and their capabilities, even though they are capable of a lot, they also have limitations built in. Yeah, got to have the Achilles heels in there. One of my favorite details, aside from the fact that they have weaknesses as well as strengths, is that you also, in their profiles, denote what their favorite reading material is. Yes, that was my favorite part. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we want them to be relatable to the kids. I mean, our kids love reading, and we also just obviously love books. Now, guys, full disclosure from me. I have never read a comic. Wow. Of any kind, of Not any even length. like Archie or a com- nope. You've read comic strips. I've read a comic strip. Have you read I've the read books of okay. comic strips? Nope. Nope. In your defense, you have I was the, playing Uno for one. <laughs> you have the raddest Incredible Hulk TV tray circa 1978. Oh boy, that's for sure. That Mom needs to seen. hand that is over to me. Is it the same me? one that we have? Yeah. They stole ours, yeah. We that's... have an Incredible Hulk TV you, It is tray. the same one. The I've same seen one. it. Okay. Yeah. Whoa. I, we got it in nice. 1978. Uh, I ate every single meal off of it. My mother will not give it to me. Oh. Yeah, no. I had a similar experience to you, I think, in that I started with Little Lulu, Hot Stuff, Richie Rich, all those Harvey comics and things like that. And then I graduated to Archie. And then from there to DC. And then when I moved into my teen angsty phase, I went from DC to Marvel. And these days, the things I really enjoy most are fanographics, drawn in quarterly, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Chris Ware is a particular favorite of mine. So... I've sort of made an evolution through that myself, but I see exactly what you were saying about how you and your kids like to read those things that they exist sort of out of time. Mm-hmm. They age really well and mm-hmm. that there's always going to be a kid who's going through that situation. Mm-hmm. There's a real universality to those Harvey comics and things like that that I think ages extremely well. I think I'm going to save my first comic for the dimensions. <laughs> All right. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. So you guys have the finished product ready to go? Yeah, we have our first issue ready to go. So you can find us online at pathway-comics.com. We've got our first issue available, just $5. We'll also have for $10 uh, an issue with some original art uh, etched into the back. In August, we'll be in Killeen at a small Comic-Con called Geek Fest. That's right, put on um, by uh, Central Texas College. It's August 12th, 13, 14. And it's a great little con um, done by the, uh, at the college there. And uh, it's actually like pretty appropriate for kids as cons go. Our kids had a blast last year, and there's a lot of uh, booth members who have their children there, too. I think it's a kind of gentler environment because it's smaller and because it's at a college. Um, and so we'll have of, our comics yeah. there available for sale. Mm-hmm. That'll be like the big debut, the big public debut right there. And um, well, I'm in hand. I'll also be emceeing a comics jam table where anyone can come up and sort of a sort of like round robin storytelling thing where each person does a panel, like writes and draws their own panel of a continuing story. So we can get the whole adventure started at pathway-comics.com. Yes. 
Well, the last thing we usually do on every episode is we make a film recommendation for further viewing that is at least tangentially connected to the film that we discussed in the regular episode. So do you guys have recommendations for us today? Yes, we do. All right. What are they? Um, mine is a movie from 1994, just 10 years after Cloak and Dagger, that's very similar to Cloak and Dagger called Fresh. It's a story of a 12-year-old boy in the city. He has kind of an absentee father who his father kind of unknowingly gives him the skills through teaching him chess to take down a whole group of drug dealers and evildoers in his neighborhood that have shot his young girlfriend. And he also for much of the movie, wears a red t-shirt and has a little backpack. And it's just a very similar movie, but doesn't have any of the 80s lack of severity of consequences of, oh, sure, get into a trunk with a dead body. It's not that big a deal. Fresh is a much more serious take on a very similar story. Okay. But something I I think maybe the mid-teens would get a lot out of would be like in the... Yeah, it's not for kids. Not for (laughs) 10-year-olds, maybe. Well, my recommendation is actually, it's not a film yet, but I'm very hopeful. Steven Universe, for me, is, uh, if anything is out there picking up the torch of this, you know, the the Steven Universe animation seems very fluffy and very silly, and it, it is, but that's just the surface of it. It's very life and death stakes. We're still struggling whether or not we can let our kids watch that one yet. There are some our of kids are very sensitive are, to <laughs> high stakes situations, and yet we want to teach them survival skills and <laughs> let them use fantasy to build strategies that can get them through crises in their lives. Yeah, that's one of the modern, you know. That's one of the few modern things, stories. and and unfortunately, the comics for Steven Universe, although they're wonderful comics, they are trying they go in a whole separate direction from the the film. So from the from shows the, from the shows, the TV shows, yeah. Although I've, I've had to give total props to those TV shows, the the comics are a bit of a um, letdown. Just well, just Dip. not they're they're very uh, they're going in artistic directions, and they are trying not to step on the show the toes of the the storytelling toes of the show, so they don't tell stories in the same vein really. My recommendation is a film that came out one year after this, and my mother and I, as I often talk about on the podcast, went to everything together. So we dashed out of this, and then the next year went to see Young Sherlock Holmes from 1985, which was directed by Barry Levinson, starring Nicholas Rowe, Alan Cox, and Sophie Ward. And as the title would suggest, it is the uh, early adventures of Sherlock Holmes, as imagined by Steven Spielberg and Chris Columbus and Barry Levinson. And I was enthralled by this movie as well. And got the best advice ever from the theater attendant before we went in, which was stay to the end, end of the movie. And I felt like I was initiated into some secret club. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to wrap up the recommendations by taking us all the way back to the beginning in the source material. And I'm going to recommend The Window from 1949, which is the first time that the short story that Cloak and Dagger was also based on was adapted for film. It was directed by Ted Tatzlaff, based on the Cornell Woolrich story, The Boy Cried Murder. Cornell Woolrich, of course, being another Hitchcock connection Mm -hmm. as well. And starred Barbara Hale, Bobby Driscoll, and Arthur Kennedy. And it's about a boy who happens to see his normal, quote-unquote, neighbors kill a sailor. 
He tells his parents about it. His parents don't believe him. They force him to go over to apologize Ooh. and tip his hand. And then mm. the bad guys are on to him. Yeah, and then wow. during this whole time, then as his punishment, he gets locked in the house, thereby being bait. It is a great wow. one. I love the window. The window is f- so much fun. Yeah, it's interesting to see that the kid in peril thing doesn't change that much over the course of several decades sometimes. A quick note about the director, Ted Tetzlaff, and Hitchcock as well. Three years before he directed The Window, Tetzlaff was the cinematographer on Notorious, which also featured one of my favorite MacGuffins instead of an Atari 5200 cartridge uranium (laughs) ore that the Nazis were going to get. So, as always, another round of great recommendations. We've got Fresh and Steven Universe, Young Sherlock Holmes, and finally The Window. And that brings us to the end of episode 26, our first anniversary episode. Happy anniversary. Thanks. It has been a really fun year doing the show, and we would just like to say thanks to everyone so far that has taken the time to listen and give us feedback. And we want to give extra special thanks to Brian and Sela for being our very first guests ever. Please check out everything that they're doing at pathway-comics.com. And if you are anywhere in the Central Texas area, go see them at the GeekFest Con in Killeen, Texas from August 12th through the 14th and check out issue number one of their new comic, The Dimensionals. You can also easily find them on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Pathway Comics. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for our name there. You can find us on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. I would like to take a second and say thanks to everyone who has shared links or given us feedback since our last episode. Mateo Boscarol, Craig Eastman, Tim Lego, Grindhouse Dave, and especially Jeff Duncanson and Geza Laszlo for all the great insight about La Cienega. Thanks for listening, and thanks for letting us know what you thought of the film. You can listen to the show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio or Google Play for you Android users. We would certainly appreciate it if you would like to leave us a rating or review. Another person left us a very nice five-star rating this time around, but no accompanying review. So let us know who you were so we can say thanks for that. And finally, if you would like to check out all of our episodes, including supplemental material, you can find that stuff at our website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 